Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. It's a huge thank you to our listeners for helping to grow the reach and impact of The Caring CEO. Incredibly, we're now listened to in 37 countries and in Apple's top 10 in the management category. And this is our 32nd interview. Thank you for listening and sharing your insights and lessons on LinkedIn and other platforms. We've also had some wonderful interviewee recommendations from our listeners, including our last one where we interviewed Shane Elliott, the CEO of ANZ. If you haven't heard this one, I highly recommend it for learning to embed a sense of purpose in a large organization. We have another great interviewee for you today with Samantha Huddle, who is the GM, Australia New Zealand, of Great Places to Work, who accredit companies by surveying their employees. So she has insight and lessons from hundreds of large, medium and small companies. And as you'll hear, she's passionate about building a psychologically safe and caring culture. She's also worked in multiple countries for great places to work and had some global perspective. She knows for sure that building a caring culture comes first and then follows high performance. She also shares how important her self-care strategies are and how she works closely with her husband to make sure they both have plenty of fuel in their tanks. Social impact has also been essential to Samantha and her first job was with Patagonia who are a real pioneer in this area. She shares what they've learned from 30 years of research at Great Places to Work. And spoiler alert, building trust and embedding values is critical. Her passion is infectious, and there are many cold nuggets in this session. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Samantha Huddle to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Samantha. Oh, thank you for having me, Graham. I'm really pleased to be here. What does care in the workplace mean to you, Samantha? We talk a lot about care at Great Place to Work, and we find that it's really fundamental to a great workplace experience. So we've been studying organisations for the past 30 years, and what we found is that high trust cultures, um, and so they're ones where people trust the people they work for, have pride in what they do, and they enjoy the people that they work with, is what makes a great workplace. And we look at care under what we call respect. So we find that trust is made up of the relationships between management and employees. So, and we talk about credibility, respect and fairness. So when we talk about care, we're talking about employees having the extent to which management's actually showing an interest in them as a person, not just an employee, and that they understand about their well-being Um, They're able to have a healthy workplace environment. They've got benefits that support them. And management recognises that they actually have lives outside of work as well. And we find that caring managers are really aware of the impact that work has upon employees' lives. And coupled together, I guess, with that is a caring workplace is one where employees feel that they can bring their whole selves to work, where they enjoy high levels of psychological safety 
And they're also able to make a mistake without feeling that there might be, um, you know, retribution. They can, you know, make them put mistakes. They're an honest part of doing business. So we find that at, you know, great workplaces, um, caring is really a central part of that. And what we've also found in the past sort of 12 months or 24 months now, COVID just keeps on going, you know, more than any other time, like care has really come to the forefront. Um, and the most important thing that managers can be doing is showing that um, care and compassion for employees on an individual basis and understanding that you can't sort of have one size fits all um, response because every employee's individual needs are quite unique. You might have someone that's trying to homeschool young children, but then you might have someone that's living alone and really missing out on those social connections. Or you may have somebody that has elder care responsibilities as well. So we've got to be able to sort of work out, uh, I guess, managers being able to connect on that personal, individual, authentic level with the people they work with and be able to, um, I guess, you know, demonstrate caring in a really genuine way. And, and it's been amazing because some of the things we've seen over the past couple of years have been, you know, truly inspiring. <laughs> um, and when the whole world has fallen apart, in lots of ways, people were able to rely on, you know, people that had jobs have been able to rely on work and that's given them that certainty or that, you know, support that sometimes people go, don't get outside of the workplace. So, yeah, sorry, a very long answer. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, care is really central to, to work. Yeah. No, what you're saying is so true. The last, whatever it is now, over two years, uh, it has just been such rapid change and such volatility that we really can't know the exact answer before we act. We have to be able to give it our best shot. And, um, you know, I've heard Jeff Bezos say that uh, the 70% solution, you know, if you're 70% sure it's right that go with that one <laughs> and then you know, adjust your sales afterwards but uh that concept of psychological safety where people can be themselves where they can try things know that know that they're going to be sacrificed if things go wrong is is absolutely critical how did uh the great place to work come into being i think you mentioned it's about 30 years old how what was the reason behind it yeah it's i mean i love this story so um Initially, the organisation was founded by Robert Levering um, and he was an industrial relations journalist. And so um, he was an anti-Vietnam War protester and he used to write about how terrible companies were. And he managed to get some um, a book advance in the 80s to write a book about the worst places to work in America. <laughs> um, and he was going to do this with Milton Moskowitz, who's a very um, famous um, journalist at the time. Um, but then the publishers got a bit nervous and they're like, oh, maybe you can't actually write a book about the worst places to work in the US. You have to write it about the best workplaces. And he's like, it was very cynical, but they'd, all, they'd already paid him the um, advance. So he actually um, went about and spent the next few years talking to thousands of employees across the US. And much to his surprise, he found out that there were some actually really great workplaces out there, but what they had in common um, was that they had really high levels of trust, um, trust between employees and management um, and where employees had really high levels of uh, trust with their colleagues and so they were able to sort of trust the people they work for, have pride in what they do and enjoy the people that they work with. And so uh, we started um, in the US, he had this book that was the New York Best Times seller and then went on to publish um, the first listing partnership with Fortune that's very well known. And now we publish lists of recognising best workplaces in more than 70 countries around the world. But then in 2004, 
2015, our global CEO, Michael Bush, came in and joined the business. And we'd been having a look at the data and what he actually found was, although we'd been recognising these great workplaces for a long time, some of his conversations with some employees at some workplaces, they weren't actually having a great experience. (laughs) And we found that um, there was sort of inconsistencies in the data when we looked at what frontline workers were experiencing relevant to executives or people based on the basis of race, ethnicity, age, there were all these other things. So we actually found that trust wasn't just enough um, and we've actually looked at the and evolved to develop the great place to work for all models. So now what we look at is consistency of experience. So it's really important. We know that um, at a great workplace we have leaders who have strong values, um, but we also look at uh, innovation by all where everybody has the opportunity to contribute to new ideas and have their ideas listened to no matter who they are or what they do in the organisation um, and that everybody has the opportunity to contribute. And so, yeah, that's sort of how we get to where we are today. I worked in a uh, recruitment consultancy for about 15 years all up and in executive search as well. And uh, so I've worked a long time in consulting and it was always very a, a very common story that we would go to see and visit a client and they'd have their values up on the wall and all this sort of stuff. And then the next day or the next week, you'd have someone from that company just telling a completely different story. Yeah. So it's one thing to name your values, and and uh, but it's another thing to live them, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about that in our model. We say that the values are not something that are on a wall. We actually yeah. say that. It's what employees experience in their day-to-day interactions with management. Yeah. And with their colleagues. And trust is such a critical element, as, as you've identified and really looked at in a lot of detail. But, you know, there's, I think there's like the element trust index, which shows that it's very low. And that was really before um, COVID began. Has it improved or declined um, since COVID started? We've actually found that if we look at our best workplaces scores on average over the past 12 months, um, they've actually improved. Um, But what we found is that organisations that were doing things really, really well before, they could lean on their trust reserves during hard times and they've been able to adapt and be far more agile than places where that might not have been in ca- um, the case. And I think, you know, for many organisations, COVID has forced them to have this leap of faith about employees working remotely and they haven't been able to sort of monitor and control in the way that um, they might have been able to traditionally. But these great workplaces that have this, that have already got high levels of trust um, have been able to make that transition a lot more easily. What uh, can a senior leadership do to restore trust? It's very fragile, isn't it? What, what can they do to restore it? Um, I mean, I think trust is easily broken and it takes a, and it can be take a long time to 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 build. Um, and I think involving employees in decisions is one of the most important things. So being collaborative, what we find time and time again is that when employees are involved in decisions that affect their jobs or work environment or they believe that management's responding to their suggestions and ideas, that builds trust. Um, And it also requires really strong two-way communications practices. Um, We had an interview with uh, Ben Dawson from Cisco uh, earlier in the year and he's the CEO of Cisco, who's one of the best workplaces in Australia the last two years. You know, they're an amazing organisation. And one of the things that he said was that trust first and then deal with deviations from that. And that's sort of how they approached COVID. Um, And I think that's, you know, a really great way 
for employers to think about, you know, if you give people that trust um, rather than, you know, employees slowly having to earn it. Because I think at the end of the day, people want to do a good job. People want to have a great time at work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Trust and vulnerability can lead to trust, can't it? And, and, and I read somewhere, I think it was in Daniel Coyle's book about the culture code, that he actually yeah. said that vulnerability precedes trust. So, so it's yeah. you know, the, the willingness to say you don't know the answers, that you don't know what's going to happen three months down the track because things are changing so quickly, that can really build it. And um, I remember I once did a, a project with a work group in NAB. They were in the operations area, continuous improvement, and a great leader there, a guy by the name of David, David Banks. And one of the outcomes of, and they going through a lot of change at that time, and this is like, you know, five years ago. But one of the outcomes of that was that um, David Banks, who was its general manager, he did a, a, a telecon every two weeks where he would answer questions. And sometimes he had to say, I just don't know. <laughs> sometimes he would say that, I know, but I can't tell you yet. And sometimes he would say, I know, but I can tell you that now. And just by doing that, it brought down the stress and built the trust. And Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we actually, uh, that is verbatim what's something that I'm often, you know, we talk to our clients about when we do culture coaching with them. Um, it's about, you know, sometimes you might have the answers, but you're not able to tell your people, but it's better to actually say that yeah. <laughs> than to say nothing. And that definitely helps. And it's about trying to keep those two-way communications mechanisms open. Yeah. I read, uh, Samantha, that one of your heroes is your grandfather. Why is that? Who was he and why was he a hero to you? Well, my this is my father's father and he'd had, you know, he had a I think, you know, quite a challenging life. You know, he was um, he was orphaned um, and he had been sent to this very exclusive private school in England on a full scholarship by the Freemasons. But I think he was one of, you know, a number of children and he'd seen that his siblings were actually um, not doing so well and they were living in poverty. So he actually left school very early to go and work and to, to care for them. Um, you know, he then married and then, you know, World War II and he was in Dunkirk. He was a sergeant and a whole lot of officers actually managed to get themselves back to England and he was left behind with wow. a number of others and they spent time behind enemy lines um, and they were able to safely sort of come back. Um, but then went on to sort of raise his family in the UK and was very involved in lots of community work and he was a very gentle man that I understand but you know I only really got to connect with him as a child and I'd love to have an adult conversation about some of the things that he learned about leadership in such, you know, how would you go through an experience like that and carry on and, you know, the trials and tribulations. But he was also a very humble person. Did you see any of his qualities reflected in your father? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think um, in terms of sort of dedication and, and hard work, I mean, my dad was a 10-point tourist and he came out here um, with $100 in a suitcase is what he told us growing up. And I think, um, you know, to, to work really hard but be really appreciative of the opportunities that he was giving us because um, things were really hard for a lot of people in Britain after the war. 
And I think, um, you know, one of those things was that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do, um, everybody is to be treated sort of with respect. Um, And, you know, which is kind of funny because I come into a great place to work and it's such a central tenant of the model about who we are and what we do. And, I mean, I know when Dad first came to to Melbourne, people used to ask him what his father did for a living and what school he went to, and that was Melbourne, (laughs) you know, in the 60s and the 70s, and that's how Melbourne was run, and he would not answer those questions. And I think sort of, you know, for me, equity and providing others with, you know, everybody has the opportunity, everybody should have the opportunity to have a a positive, great experience at work, and for many people that's unfortunately not the case. And your mum came to Australia when she was 18, right? That's right. Yeah, that's a big thing by by herself and and no, with her mother. <laughs> okay, with her mother. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. But I understand at the time, Mum didn't wasn't very keen on coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so she she came as well. I mean, Mum had actually travelled around and lived lots of different places as a child because her mother was raising her by herself, and you know, women had worked during the war. Yeah. Um, but. There, as soon as the men came back, there were no jobs for women. They had to give all those jobs up for men. Um, and so it was very difficult, I think, for my grandmother to, to, to find work and they moved around a lot. So mum went to like I think 10 different schools and left school at the end of year 10. Wow. Um, and her, I think her teacher really wanted her to go to university but she had to. Um, she was told she had to leave school and it was time to get a job. So I think, you know, like I've been very lucky to have experiences that they didn't have. Um and, you know, I guess I'm made aware of that. <laughs> and with that kind of feels, you feel some kind of, I don't know, responsibility. Yeah. And uh, you chose, to, you were the first in your family to go to university, which was a great, you know, achievement by your parents to prepare you and have you ready and make sacrifices. And you chose to study literature. What was that? I was just really passionate about um, writing and ideas and the way that, words could make you feel and the way that you could use words to influence others I guess Mm. um yeah literature and politics (laughs) (laughs) um and history as well I guess but um I was looking at you know do I do arts or commerce and I was thinking all the right thing sensible thing to do would be commerce and dad's like you should do what you love and what you feel interested in and I feel so lucky to have had that education because so often you know it's all about how you can actually get you know something that's going to be functional yeah and um to have that opportunity to learn how to think critically is you know wonderful who are some of your uh, favorite authors um wow that is a big question i i mean look just to enjoy and relax i love geraldine brooke um i've been reading a lot of brene brown the last few years Mm. and i mean i think you know her work on vulnerability is amazing um and really inspiring mm. um, and I think you sort of get to a stage in your life where you want to start you know reflecting on who you are especially after you have kids and and how you want to to do things. I also saw just on Brené Brown I also saw that you're a f- real fan of that speech you did you know Teddy Roosevelt had that uh, saying about being in the arena and you loved what she spoke about in there. What what do you what did you take away from that that um, you use? Um, I mean, it's okay to just you know 
if you're really passionate about something and you really believe in something, it's better to, to get up and have a go and try to make a contribution. And even, you know, if it's not going to be perfect, if you don't have a go, you'll, if you do have a go, you'll get further than you ever would have before. And it's so, you know, they, they talk about the, she talks about the cheap seats. It's so easy to sit there and criticise others. Um, and I think, you know, particularly sometimes we can have a bit of a tall poppy <laughs> syndrome culture, but, you know, I think we should really celebrate others that are willing to, to step up and, and give things a go because it's not easy. Yes, yeah, very much so. One of your first jobs was with Patagonia. What were they like to work with? Oh, they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of came to Patagonia because I'd um, just done a couple of ski seasons over school, overseas working in ski resorts and um, had started wearing their clothes and I had a friend who had actually been working in retail and had sold me one of their items in Canada and told me all about the company. And then when I came back to Melbourne, um, I was come, I'd come back to do my honours year and um, they just opened up their first store in Melbourne and sort of went in and I was very excited and, and got myself a job. And they were just amazing um, because they had this, this saying at the time, um, we don't care what our, our employees work as long as the job gets done and if the surf's up, we'd close the store. Um, <laughs> and I was really lucky to meet Yvonne Chouinard, um, who was their founder when he came out to Australia. And I guess for me, it really had a massive influence on my career in a couple of ways. I remember first um, one Christmas we received this box of brownies um, from the US and that was to celebrate the fact that they'd been named in the Fortune Best Companies list and <laughs> little did I know that I would eventually be working for a great place to work in the UK and Australia. <laughs> um, but also like at the time I was sort of studying um, human rights as part of my honours thesis and for me it was about understanding the impact that business could actually have as a force for social change in the world and to see, you know, how I mean, Patagonia really used the purpose of the company as a tool for social change, um, for environmental change. They were, you know, very early they decided to give 1% of revenue to grassroots environmental causes. Um, and it made me think about business in a way that I'd never really thought about before and which I found really interesting. And so that had really, you know, influenced um, me in the sort of some of the career choices I made. But just the way they trusted their people, they treated their people, they built camaraderie. Um, but everybody was really, you know, like people in the company really believed in the purpose of what the company did. So you weren't just buying a ski jacket or fleece. You know, you were actually buying, you know, this purpose and this ideal. That was pretty special. Yeah, yeah. And I know now I'm pretty sure they're a B Corp, which for our listeners is a beneficial corporation. Yeah. That means that they're accredited on what they contribute to their employees, their suppliers, the community and the environment. Um, and so and that, that sort of sense of contribution I, I see in your career, that's been quite a common theme you've been interested in and even your master's studies now. Why do you think it is important for employers to contribute to a better world? Look, I think there's a, a few reasons. I mean, there's the business case. And at the moment, if we look at Gen Y and Gen Z employees, they really want to work somewhere that matches their values. They want to work at, at places where, uh, you know, employers have purpose that are inclusive. Um, they have a position on climate change. Um, but I think, you know, you know, in the world today, we have these systemic problems that can't just be solved by government or by individuals. We need business and government and individuals and civil society to come together um, to be able to solve them. And if we if we don't do that, 
we won't be able to get the benefits and, you know, we won't be able to, to solve these wicked problems. And um, when I say that, I'm talking about things like poverty and climate change or, or even, you know, a lack of wellbeing people experience at work. So I think there's a really important role that government and business can play. We know that when employees feel a sense of purpose in their work um, and not just about the work that they do but in something outside of work, they're actually going to make a much more significant contribution than if they don't. So one of the questions we ask is, I feel good about the ways we contribute to community mm. um, and my work has special meaning. And we find at the best workplaces on those two statements, uh, employees um, rate much more highly than the average workplaces. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. I um, was fortunate enough to interview Steve Worrell, the Managing Director of uh, Microsoft in Australia, and he talked about the huge impact that... um, the, the um, CEO, the global CEO of Microsoft, has got a, got a, a flag on his, on his name. But he started his whole speech when he took over as CEO about five years ago that um, he talked about how technology had helped his children who had learning difficulties and were dyslexic could could um, they could suddenly do it with the help of technologies. And so he threw out the challenge of um you know, what are you passionate about? How can how can you use Microsoft to change the problems or improve the problems you're passionate about? And as an example of that, uh, Steve Worrell um, decided to start the um, uh, Mental Health Workplace Alliance, which was for senior leaders to really embrace the concept of um, change. And, yeah, and I, I have spoken with other people that work in real purpose focused organisations, and they really add something. And you're probably aware there was a report brought out by Atlassian and um, PwC called Return on Action um, last year, and it showed that employees' number one societal concern was mental health. Um, And I guess that reflects the whole, um, you know, pandemic and what have you. But what was even more fascinating, I thought, was that on average, all the people they interviewed, the engagement there was 54% engaged. But if their employers were doing something about the causes they were passionate about, that went up to 89%. And I'm sure your own your own stuff would reflect that as well. Yeah, and look, Microsoft um, and Atlassian are both great great place to work, certified companies. And we, yeah, we, we see that 
in, in the care that they show their employees as well. But we've found that quite often in the last couple of years, people have had the mental health support from work because they haven't had other places to get it. And I think there's been this real sort of tipping point with awareness around mental health and wellbeing where now it's sort of okay for people to talk about it in a work context in a way that two years ago really wasn't normalised. In some uh, Gallup research, they found that um, up to 70% of the engagement in the team is due to what the manager or leader does or says. So if that's the case, how do we scale great leadership and management across an organisation? Yeah, look, that's, um, you know, we definitely find that those frontline leaders are actually critical um, to creating a great place to work experience. And what we know now is that with the speed and agility with which decisions need to be made in a business, uh, they're being made further and further down the line. So you can't just be relying on the executive to make these decisions. We need to be able to trust um, our frontline leaders and mid-level managers to be able to make these decisions. And I think part of that is having a culture where people, it's okay to fail, it's okay to learn, it's okay to show up and be yourself. Um, And I think a lot of, you know, the workplaces that do this really, really well, they are able to coach their managers to be able to make those individual connections with the employees they manage on a very personal, you know, individual basis. Mm. And so quite often it might, um, giving those managers enough sort of training so they feel confident having these conversations with their reports about, well, what's going, you know, how can we help you balance your work life and your personal life so you can bring your whole best self to work? I mean, a great example I've got um, is Mantle Group, who won um, the medium best workplaces category in Australia last year. And their managing director actually meets with every employee every year to work out my deal. And the my deal is what is um, your my deal for what you want to achieve on your personal and work goals for the next 12 months. And then they work together to work out a my deal for how they can help that employee do that, which is just a fabulous practice. I really like that. That's in, that's sensational. So how many employees do they have? <laughs> a few hundred, I think. Wow. So that, that obviously takes a huge amount of, yeah. of the CEO's time, but he's obviously determined that it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, they may, I think they're a house of brands, so it's probably done by managing directors in the different businesses, but it's it's just such a fabulous practice. And um, you know, they're a great organisation, really high levels of trust. But that means that it's like a unique and special benefit that they're able to offer their people. And so things like that will help build trust. But I think having that, you know, we talk about before or later is someone who's able to um, make that emotional connection with the people that they're leading. Um, so they feel listened to. So they're able to raise concerns and ideas. How do you raise concerns with someone that reports to you that has disappointed you? Something that I've been thinking about a lot recently um, is we interviewed uh, Bellroy, who is also a big corp, and they went our small list. And they were talking about like when mistakes are made at, at work, it's always about the information. It's not about the person. Mm. It's about the information. And um, that's something that I've really been um, thinking about a lot in how I sort of lead and manage people. Like what is the information that is um, you know, got somebody to make this decision. I mean, I haven't really been in a situation with our team at the moment where people are disappointing me. Everybody is, you know, so passionate and committed. Um, but I think when mistakes are made, I think it's a great way to look at um, how we can fail quickly and move on is like what's the information um, 
rather than it being the person. And on a personal level, you've got lots of balls to juggle. You know, you're married, you've got, uh, you know, two kids, you live in Melbourne, so by definition, <laughs> you've had lots of lockdowns and you've done lots of homeschooling. How did you and your husband cope with that? Look, it's been really hard and um, he's been, you know, really, really great. But I think in lots of ways it's been this sort of new level where um, all of a sudden, you know, both parents in families where there are two parents at home with young families have had to sort of see all of the domestic things that we've had to balance. I know that it, last year you know, it was a, we had some, some changes in our business in Australia and we've been growing really quickly. So it was like being in a startup in the middle of a pandemic. And I think, you know, it's about, I guess, firstly about prioritising. Uh, you can't do everything at once. I know, do you know Emma Isaacs from Business Chicks? Mm. She talks about the four burners (laughs) and she can only keep two burners going at a time. And I think that's a great analogy. And I think, you know, for us to see sort of like family and sanity first, Um, you can't do everything. And um, my perfectionist tendencies have really been (laughs) shown, had to be shown the door. But we really make it a priority in terms of, you know, I do PT and um, Pilates and I walk with a girlfriend a couple of times a week. My husband plays soccer and us doing exercise and having that time is actually really important so we can actually be our best selves for our kids. But it also means that, you know, I'm doing my master's as well so my socialising might just be catching up with a girlfriend for a walk. It won't be the sort of um, what I look back at pre-COVID times, the excessive socialisation that I might used to have done. And I think, um, you know, I know definitely in the last six months I've been really trying to mind my mindset. And one of the things I've done that has been really positive is journaling. And I just, you know, as somebody who used to be passionate about writing, I don't know how I haven't (laughs) come to this party so late, but just being able to reflect on what I'm grateful for each day, um, you know, you know, we're working at home, but I have a home. (laughs) I have a family. there are so many things that we we can can be grateful for, and I think that sort of practice has helped. And you know, I don't really, I don't drink really unless there's a special occasion because I need to get my sleep. In lots of ways, it's about keeping it simple, stupid, I guess. <laughs> and and when you write in your journal, do you do that by typing or just? I write. I handwrite it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so look, and my husband's been, you know, he's really hand like we're we're both you know, partners in raising our children and um, we both sort of share the pickups and the drop-offs and we have time with the children. Like they're both at primary school, so they're still both quite one. So we get that sort of one-on-one time and have that family time and prioritise like at least having one meal a day together as a family, which doesn't sound like much, but it actually sometimes when there's activities or, you know, it can, it can disappear. And I think that's, for me, that's kind of the cornerstone of families, being able to sit down and, and talk at the table, even if they don't like what you're serving them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but another thing I've read recently was um, Robin Sharma. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, I understand the, the book, The Everyday Hero Manifesto. <laughs> it's got a title. So he, he wrote another book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And the 5am club. So this is um, this is the first one of his that I have 
um, read, but he has this methodology about how to sort of be your best. And there's some things that I've taken from it and some things that at my at this stage in my life with young children are not quite working. Like I did try the 5am club for a few weeks, but <laughs> I, I, was try, I was having to go to bed before them and that just didn't work that well for the family. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things he talks about is like doing this weekly review at, about, you know, what you've done over the course of the week. And so I've been going back through my journal and looking and giving the week a bit of a, a rating and, you know, sometimes you're actually, you know, moving the needle or achieving things or making gains that you wouldn't have necessarily done if you hadn't done that. You mentioned the, you know, the gratitude benefits of journaling and that's that's well proven that, that that's great for our mood, self, sense of self as well. But were you also, do you also have insights by having that habit that you may not have had if you hadn't had the regular journaling activity? I think so. And I think, um, oh, there was something that um, Ben Crow, who I follow, who I think is just fabulous, um, shared a couple of weeks ago on Instagram. And I think something had happened while Rafa was playing, Nadal was playing, and he was sort of interrupted by somebody who was heckling from the crowd. And he was talking about how there's this space, he was referring to that psychiatrist, but he was sort of saying there's this space between stimulus and response. Um, and that's where you have the power to choose. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think it's really helped me stop and think and reflect. And and even if, you know, sometimes, you know, there are things that might heighten your blood pressure <laughs> during the day, you know, being in Melbourne in a lockdown situation for a long time, there's lots of things like that. But it, I think it's made me stop and say, oh, actually, I'm aware, I'm feeling and thinking this, I'm going to pause and yeah. take a breath and think about it differently. So I think it also really helps you to reframe situations. I really w- liked what Ben Crow said because he's, as you know, is the uh, mindset coach for Ash Barty as well. And he talked about how mu- many of us stress by things we can't control and you have no control over the outcome. You have no control on other people, mm. but you can control what you choose to do each day and what you do and how you do it sort of thing. And I really think that's a, um, a fabulous uh, perspective, really um um, you let go of the result, and I think that does help with actually performing better than ever, as, as Ash Barty certainly showed. <laughs> oh, look, absolutely! And I was so lucky to be at the Barty party a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and um, and I was watching, you know, and you know, she just looked like she was enjoying it, and just such grace as well. And I think that's the thing; like, life is a journey, and um, you know, I'm really lucky that I have a real sense of connection and purpose to the work I do and I'm really passionate about it. But I think, you know, if we can connect to that purpose and be, it's in those small actions and those small things that we do every day rather than just being focused on these end goals, it can really, you know, help us enjoy the experience a lot more. And it is also um, good to reflect on Nadal as well. And I must admit I'm one who gave up and it was two sets down he was sweating like a pig. Um, he was making unforced errors. I thought it's all over. It's all over. And what a um, champion. <laughs> just, just extraordinary. And he's he'd never done that before. So at, at 35 years old and 20 grand slams, he'd never come back from two sets down before. But um somehow he managed it. And you know, uh, and I think it is a lot as what you describe, as what Ben Crow described, is choosing how to respond. Mm. Um, one point at a time. It's uh, there's lots of great lessons there for us. That's for sure. 
If you had a message that you could share with the world, what would it be? Oh, look, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're all we're all the same. <laughs> we're all, um, you know, we're all, we all want to love and be seen and um, feel understood and um, just acknowledge that we can do that together with each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we all have hopes and dreams and and you never know really, you never always know what what another person's going through. Yeah, I think that's an important one as well. So I think the last few years there's been such, you know, social upheaval and turbulence globally right. in, in lots of ways. And I think um, particularly for people that have, you know, worked, um, tried to work on sort of social change or in progressive movements or things about, you know, <laughs> business being a force for good and things like that. I think it led a lot of people to do a lot of soul searching. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know personally I've done a lot of soul searching about things like, you know, climate change, like why haven't we made the gains and why hasn't anybody listened? But I think, you know, there's been a lot of, um, you know, people have been shouting at each other and there hasn't been as much listening and people trying to meet each other on the same level. And so I think um, it would be about, try to find ways to, to to listen. Yeah, yeah. And I love that point about not knowing what people are going through. There's a saying, and I can't remember who said it, be kind, everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And it is very, very true. You know, I, I share my story of battling with depression and mental illness frequently and just so many people come back, come up to you uh, and tell you their story and you know, these can be people that look like they've got the perfect life, yeah. but uh, you don't know. You really don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Um, and I think that sort of mindset is a great one to have that connection with people to um, realise we all, you know, all, all want similar things and uh, we all want to feel respected and, and understood. It's been absolutely fantastic catching up with you, Samantha. A wide range of uh, discussions and topics, and it's particularly great to get your insights. Uh, you know, running an organisation in Australia, like great places to work because you have lots of quantitative and I'm sure qualitative insights about how those things you raised are so important. The, you know, the trust, the respect, the um, other person's perspective, the purpose, all really, really critical things to navigate in this sort of environment. If you had the opportunity to go back to your 20-year-old self, so just when you were finishing your literature degree and you could have the knowledge you have now, what, what advice would you give that person? You've got time. <laughs> Pause and take a breath. Um, I think one of the things I'd say is that you don't have to think the same way as other people for your ideas to be worth something <laughs> as well. Um, I know I think I, there's that saying, comparison is the thief of joy. You know, it's something I talk to my boys about. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard, it's, you know, like it's hard to not get sucked into that. Um, but I think it's taken me a long time to be able to really try to live that as well and you know just um be yourself gonna be okay (laughs) (laughs) there's one more thing um i was hoping to share 
Um, yeah, is, yeah, so I mean, look, and you know, just a great place to work. Our mission is to create great places to work for all. But you know, any company that wants to start out on their journey to becoming a great workplace, the first step is to become great place to work certified. So we can help companies by benchmarking their culture by you know doing um, we use our trust index. Um, employee survey to measure the quality of their employees' experiences at work. Um, and it's our vision that every organisation will, you know, have that high-trust culture um, and become Great Place to Work certified. So that's, sort of, you know, how we'd like to contribute. What are the uh, yeah, there's obvious benefits to employees? What are, the, what are the benefits to society if if people do feel they've got a – if they do have a great employee experience, what, what, what are the benefits to um, – Yeah, lower absenteeism, better mental health. Um, you know, businesses will grow faster and create more opportunities. We find that at the best workplaces for all where people are included and feel they have the opportunity to contribute, uh, that they have high levels of innovation and that they're growing. They grow um, five times faster than other businesses as well. But I think, you know, if people are able to bring their whole selves at work and, you know, no matter who they are or what they do, regardless of ethnicity cultural background or gender, that's also helping model what we'd love to see outside of society. Yeah. Thanks for uh, sharing those really important messages on The Caring CEO. Samantha, it's been great talking with you. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me, Graham. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.